The difference between science and the arts is not that they are different sides of the same coin even, or even different parts of the same continuum, but rather they are manifestations of the same thing. Astronaut Mae Jemison is uniquely qualified to expound on both the thrilling vastness of the universe and the ineffable beauty that comes with bearing witness to that universe. It's true, I believe, that the arts and sciences cannot be separated. Science informs us about the world, while the arts and humanities allow us to make sense of the data we receive. We need the qualitative and the quantitative, the tables and formulas, and the arias, sculptures, and sonnets. Just as the arts evoke deep emotion, drawing on the inner collective unconscious that seems present in us all, the sciences too have the ability to elicit wonder. If you've ever stood at the edge of a cliff, staring down into layers of Earth's history, written in the raw rock beneath your feet, you understand. Maybe you've watched in awe as new life enters the world, bloody and chaotic and mewling for its chance to breathe, its chance to be. Or perhaps it's simpler than that for you. Maybe it is the childhood memory of asking an adult why leaves are green, or why hearts beat, or why we need sleep. Perhaps it was a revelation you had in college that spurred you to ask question after question, transforming your curiosity into knowledge. You might be a scientist today. You might be someone who loves science or someone who just believes that science is essential for our survival. Whoever you are and whatever your relationship with science and the arts, welcome to This Is Science. I'm your host, Jess Phoenix, and it's my honor to create this show for the Union of Concerned Scientists. As you'll hear, we have many reasons for concern, but at least an equal number for hope and wonder. Ignorance is the disease we're fighting, and the good news is that curiosity is the cure. Since I'll be your tour guide on this journey through science, here's a bit about me. Professionally, I'm a volcanologist, and I've been working on volcanoes since 2008. My work has taken me to six continents and into and out of countless jaw-dropping, heart-pounding, and utterly mind-blowing places and situations. When I was working on my very first volcanoes with the U.S. Geological Survey in Hawaii, I kept a blog. Years later, TV producers discovered that blog, and then the media requests began. I can't tell you how many times I've had to crush Hollywood's dreams. No, you can't drive a car across an active lava flow. No, I can't predict eruptions so you can chase volcanoes. No, I will not let your director make field scientists look like they've never left the lab before. Don't get me wrong, though. I absolutely love sharing science with anyone who will listen. We've experienced a massive shift in the scientific community recently. In the words of physicist Stephen Hawking, not only is it important to ask questions and find the answers, as a scientist, I felt obligated to communicate with the world what we were learning. That is our obligation as scientists. It's not enough to just do the work or to be concerned. Although here at the Union of Concerned Scientists, we are concerned like it's our job, 
Because it is. We must get the information we learn to the public so science can inform our art, our lives, and our government policies. To that end, I'm kicking off our brand new show with one of my favorite science communicators, Allie Ward. Buckle up and hang on, because we're about to get this ride started. All right. I have the immense privilege of speaking with Allie Ward, who happened to be the very first person to ask me to be on her brand new podcast. I think it's the first time that I was ever on a podcast uh, as the first guest, and it happened to be with Allie and her show, Ologies. So to me, this is pretty cool. Uh, and and I wanted to give you a little intro, Allie, and then kind of turn the question around. So I know that you're the host of Ologies, which is fantastic. Check it out if you haven't, listeners. Uh, Innovation Nation, you're on that with Mo Rocca and some other great folks. Uh, you did, did I mention Invention? And I know you as a fantastic human and a really loving dog parent. So I want you to describe yourself. Um, see, we're, we're turning it around. So describe yourself ah! and 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 what you do to people who may be listening to this who don't know you. Oh my gosh. Um, well, number one, thank you for having me on. This is very exciting to me. You were my first guest ever on Ologies. So I guess I'm a science communicator, but I sort of live at this intersection of art and science. I studied film in college and science as well. And I was really torn between the two fields. And so I didn't know way down the line that this could be a job of making making something entertaining out of science. And so I work in TV and on for Netflix and do some shows for them as well as CBS. And then I started my own podcast about five years ago. And I didn't expect it necessarily. To, I hoped that it would take off, but um, but I really wanted to do something that was in my voice that was talking about science in a way that I felt like I didn't get a chance to do on TV, especially Saturday morning and kids TV. And so um, Ologies was born then. And you were my very first guest. It was of all the Ologies, I had to start with Volcanology. It's so thrilling and exciting. And you were perfect as a first guest. And that is still one of the most listened to episodes ever. People start at the beginning. Great. Well, hopefully this kicks off. Uh, this is science <laughs> with a bang here. Um, not the volcanic type of bang. Uh, we, we'd like to keep those at the minimum. <laughs> so I, when I was looking at your, your background and your bio, obviously I've known you for several years now and, you know, digging into it, there were things in there thank you, Wikipedia, that I was unfamiliar with. Uh, one of which, just as a, a lighthearted thing before we get into more science talk, is please explain the McNuggetini. Oh, I'm always really afraid that when I die, this will make it to my obit. And I hope it doesn't. But uh, I made a, a drink out of a milkshake and a McNugget years ago. And back when the internet was just a a little tiny baby. It went a little bit viral and then ended up making cocktail videos for Cooking Channel. And I had been a journalist at the LA Times and the LA Weekly. And I covered the arts beat and I covered everything from events at the Science Museum to like a Tetris competition under a bridge. And so I was sort of like on the nightlife beat anyway. So yeah, I made up this drink. It went a little bit viral and then parlayed it into Cooking Channel videos. But I 
everyone was always so envious of the job. Like you get to travel around the country and eat cupcakes and make drinks, but it never really felt like me. And I always, I always felt like such a jerk because I was like, this is great, but I really want to be talking about cockroaches. So I ended up volunteering at the Natural History Museum and that kind of changed my life. But it's good to find out that not, not everyone's job is their dream job. You know, like not every job can be everyone's dream job. Some people's dream job would be talking about cockroaches, mine. Others would be eating cupcakes in Cincinnati. So it's really, you really got to figure out what you love in life to lead you to it. So that makes me wonder if there is someone who's studying like the effects of feeding cupcakes to cockroaches in (laughs) Cincinnati's microclimate. I'm sure, I'm sure it's someone's PhD. (laughs) There's absolutely got to be. Well, you know, cockroaches, uh, well, one particular species makes a milk, feeds their young this milk, and it has protein crystals in it. They're one of like the best, most complete meals ever. And uh, scientists are trying to synthesize that to make cockroach milk. So as a food source. I mean, I have to say bugs aren't my strong suit. So I'm glad I know who to call. I mean, the closest mm-hmm. I've gotten to deal with bugs in like a field research setting was I came across a bunch of blister beetles in a mating frenzy while I was out in the Mojave wow. Desert. And you do not want to interrupt this. <laughs> so, so before we get, we don't want to go R-rated the first episode, but it was it was a good time for bug people. Oh, we'll put it that way. This makes me want to ask you, because we're obviously talking about something that is, it's scientific E, uh, and it's funny, and it's cool. So from what you have learned from all of your different forays into mass media and communication, why do you think that science today doesn't come across as accessible to the average person, whatever that might be, if there even is an average person, really? Right. You know, the biggest part of that for me in terms of being a science communicator is is context and relatability. And I think people, if they can see themselves or they can see their life in anything, they will become interested. And I think that there are reality shows that don't have anything to do with our lives. People who drive Rolls Royces that uh, live in giant McMansions, that they don't have lives like ours. But for some reason, people are drawn to it because they're looking for something that looks like their life, relationship troubles or whatever. And I think um, that when it comes to science communication, if you can let people know that there is context and that it somehow relates to their life, whether it changes what they see when they walk their dog, whether they realize what that tree is in their backyard, whether they understand more about a ladybug, then it changes the way that they interact with the world. And so I think giving people context and making it feel like it's part of their life is is the biggest challenge in science communication. And also it's just academia is by nature exclusive and I, my family was not there. No one in my family is an academic. I didn't, I didn't know what tenure was when, when I asked people about it, they're like, Oh, I got tenure. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. It sounds like they've been there for 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I thought that I thought it came after 10 years. And I was like, I remember I talked to someone who said that she worked in a lab that had the same last name as she did. And I said, Oh, wow. Is that just a coincidence? Or did you have a Uh, someone older in your family that you inherited from? She's like, no, you get to name your lab after yourself. And I was like, oh, I didn't even know that. 
So I myself yeah. kind of um, approach it as an everyday person because I'm I'm not in academia, but um, but yeah, making taking it from those really long titled papers that are in journals behind paywalls to this is what it means for your life and this is what it, you know this is how snails snail courtship works uh reminds you a little bit of your own life doesn't it you know if you had to hazard a, a hypothesis let's make it very scientific why do you think that more scientists aren't activists currently ah oh, that's a great question i think that there's something about academia that almost encourages everyone to be in a control group of their own. You know, I think that academia seems to want to polish off a lot of what makes individuals unique in, and in a way that almost is a, looks like a safety from bias. I think that activism is maybe scary for some academics because the fear of of seeming biased. But from what I understand, a lot of the academics I talk to, at least, seem really afraid to put their whole self forward, whether it's their own identities, whether it's their background and experience. But I've found, and what I think a lot of scientists believe is, the questions that you're asking really can steer science in new directions. And so it always feels like to me, if you don't see someone who looks like you in the room, then you belong there even more because you're asking questions that haven't been asked before. But it seems like a lot of scientists, especially in a really, really contentious political environment, are afraid of of seeming like they're coming into their science with biases instead of being persuaded by the science toward a conviction, you know? So it seems very prickly and really hard. And even with ologies, I try to keep things, I try to let the information speak for itself and try to convince people maybe who otherwise wouldn't realize that they had an open mind, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So it's, and yeah, it's tough. I think you're right. <laughs> it's um it's a weird intersection that we are currently at with uh with science and pop culture and activism and political awakenings. And so and of course we have all this with the backdrop of of climate change and other, you know, big picture things that we have to they're challenges, they're problems we've got to solve. So so right. then I would say you have obviously been doing science communication for many years now, but we've not heard that term for that long, science communication or science communicator as like a job description. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, why do you think there has been such a, like a an push towards better science communication? And, and why do you think so many young scientists or people who are like science adjacent are really trying to get into science communication? You know, I think the biggest thing that changed the climate, if you will, um, was really flat earthers. I think once once the flat earthers came out, I think a lot of people were like, all right, that's it. I'm becoming a science communicator. <laughs> like, what happened? What yeah. happened? Oh. And so I feel like I feel like there was this just wave of of misinformation. I don't know, maybe around 2016 or so. And I think um, 
I think that even the Me Too movement as well, I think inspired a lot of people to say that's enough. I have a place at this table. I'm I'm climbing on whatever soapbox I can cobble together because that's, this is enough, you know? And so I think that it was born out of a lot of frustration and also just desperation. I mean, I think that it's, it's so odd to see whole swaths of populations at odds with hard data. Um, like we've seen in the, in the, in climate science. And, you know, I had I had a really great interview with a phenologist, which phenology is the study of seasonal change. Ooh, and cool. I always ask people, yeah, it's a great, it's everything from leaves changing to spring blossoms to climate change and how that intersects. And uh and Libby uh Elwood, she's amazing. She's at the La Brea Tarpus, but she was talking about the, I asked her the hardest thing about her job and she started crying. And she was like, I'm so embarrassed I'm doing this. And I was like, let it flow, dude. And she was saying that it's so weird to be a climate scientist who is trying to tell people what's going on and people don't believe her. And so I think a lot of people said, hey, like media is so democratized these days. You can have a TikTok get seen by more people than the evening news. Get up there and tell some truths, you know, which is great. It's a great intersection of anger (laughs) And resentment plus media accessibility. There you go. That's all you need. That's like yeah. the that's the chemistry you it's, need. We are furious and we have cell phone cameras. <laughs> <laughs> that's like uh, you know, need. welcome to the 21st century, right? Talking about that phenologist uh who got emotional is I feel like there is a lot at stake and there is a lot of emotion even in science denying. And I try to approach the communication of it with some kind of empathy because I have family members, because I have people in my life, because I have people in my mentions who are really on a different side of a political spectrum that sort of adheres to this um, this deep skepticism about data. Uh, you know, I try to appeal to what is driving them. Is it a fear of is it a fear of of facing the truth about what maybe like climate science means for their future generations? Is it a fear of being taken advantage of? Is it a fear of being lied to? Is it a fear that if you embrace certain parts of science that are scarier, that that means that they'll come true? So even with audiences and with family members that um, do have some hostility toward it. I try to think about what the fear is behind that and appeal to that and try to approach it a little bit more emotionally when it comes to storytelling, you know? Yeah, I think that's it. I think, uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm of the philosophy and it sounds like, I mean, because you have the background in, in humanities and arts as well as science. I mean, you probably are on the same wavelength as I am in that we need everybody on deck to to solve the problems that science can help us solve. Like you can't have people mm-hmm. sitting it out. And so it is important to reach people who may not be like, oh yeah, I'm totally into science. Like we need to reach the the poets and then the artists and the historians. <laughs> I mean, we need everybody. And so that makes me, we want to go in a slightly more uplifting direction now. So I want to know when you think science is at its best. 
Oh, you know, I love the stories that I hear from ologists who talk about when they realize that they are the only person on earth to know something, when they've made a discovery of a new millipede or when they have isolated a a compound or when they've realized that a particular microbe isn't extinct and they realize that they're the first person on the planet to really capture that information and be able to spread it. That is such a beautiful moment to hear about. And I I also love when sci- I feel like science is at its best when it's powered by passion and when it's fueled by a sense of something bigger. And I, I feel like the best scientists I talk to are the ones who love what they do and they love their subject. And so there are a lot of people who love animals. So they went to the vet school route realized they did not want to be a vet. They wanted to study gopher tortoises in the wild. And that's great. And you're going to be better at what you do if you find out what you love. So I think that there's so much passion in science. And when people click into what they are really, really interested in using the science for to impact the world, like their science gets better and their science communication gets better. So it really comes down to what what would you want to do? I mean, look at you and volcanoes. Like you love volcanoes. There are some people who'd be like, that is the last place on earth I would want to be. Yeah, you were but I can't climbing them. into calderas. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, the best I, thing. it's amazing. Yeah. It's terrify. It would terrify some people. Yeah. Yeah. The football and some size people like lava bombs. <laughs> I mean, those are the small ones. <laughs> Cece, you know this. You know me. You know my personal brand of insanity. And it is very yeah. much, I think that's what makes good scientists is people who allow their their passion for something or their curiosity to really lead the conversation. And what I wanted to ask, because you've done so much um, different sort of SciCom work, uh, SciCom for people in the know, science communication. I obviously I've seen video of you eating like a fire retardant gel. <laughs> I have, you know, I know, I know True. you've done some pretty wild things. Um, and, and I wanted to know out of all, you know, the, the broad sum of your experiences, what is just, it doesn't have to be the most awe inspiring thing, but something that you found really like jaw dropping and amazing that you can share with us. And that really, every time you think about it, you just get happy or excited or you light up or you're just in awe. Oh, the, the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my life happened in Las Vegas, which most people could not say. <laughs> Normally when I go to Vegas, I don't expect to see anything <laughs> this life-changing. But I was there to I mean, it can be, but not in, a, not in a good way. That's what I was saying. You go to Vegas and it changes your life, but it's basically that you're scarred for life. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I, I, I'm excited. Have, okay, do tell. <laughs> I have seen some things in Vegas that I I've thankfully probably have, have forgotten. But I was there on assignment shooting for CBS for Innovation Nation with uh, my producer, John Murphy. It was a last minute thing. The other correspondent couldn't make it. So last minute, can I come to Vegas to shoot this? I said, sure. And it was a jetpack. It was a hoverboard powered by small jet engines. Frankie Zapata is a French aeronautics engineer and I suppose daredevil. He has a hoverboard that has two like oatmeal canister sized jets. They are fueled by through tubes to a backpack filled with five gallons of kerosene. The man gets on the platform. (laughs) 
He fires this thing up and immediately there's some sort of like infrasonic rumble that is like stands all the hairs up on the back of your neck like a tiger roar. Like you, it's a rumble that you can't even from a jet engine nearby that you just can't even comprehend. The heat starts blasting. And then before you know it, Frankie Zapata has pressed a button and has shot 100 miles an hour, hundreds of feet in the air. And here's a human being on a hoverboard powered by jetpacks. You're in a just a blaze of hot air and so many carcinogens. And I have never seen anything like it. I couldn't believe I was watching a human being flying around a lake in Las Vegas and just hundreds of miles an hour in every direction, zooming around. And it just was like CGI. And I was so glad that the other correspondent couldn't make it to that because I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. But when he came back down, I got to interview him and I asked Frankie, I was like, did you have like health insurance? <laughs> What's, what happens? He was like, no, no, no one, no one will insure me for health, health insurance. And I was like, oh, no, be careful. So you're basically telling me that, so it's like my favorite thing, which is basically curiosity. And these people mm-hmm. have curiosity and then you combine it with the best instincts of human nature, which is helping each other. And then you get amazing scientific discoveries and sometimes jetpacks, which sounds sometimes pretty jetpacks. excellent. <laughs> it was yeah, unlike so, <laughs> anything I've ever seen. So, so what I like to do and I know this is the first podcast, so I really appreciate you coming on and being the first guest. But I, the, one of the things that cracks me up about being with the Union of Concerned Scientists is that the name, I mean, we are very, very concerned as scientists. We all mm-hmm. have to be. It's sort of in the job description. So I'd like to ask you to do our very first answer to the question, why are you concerned about science? Oh, oh that's a great question. I think. I am concerned about science because distrust sells and the intersection of media and science, I think, is a little bit of the problem. And I came from a, a line of journalists and very aware of the, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And if you can spark controversy and if you can pit people against each other, you're going to get more clicks and you're going to get more money. And so I think I'm concerned about science because I see it in a tug of war with media, which is kind of at this point um, really run run by money. And so I think science versus money is always a little scary. And I'm concerned that we'll give up. I'm concerned that we'll get to a point where we're convinced that things are unchangeable and we'll give up. And so, you know, I think that I, I, I'm a little concerned that we won't be able to collectively flex a muscle to stop maybe corporate greed from making decisions that are not in the best interest of humanity and the animals on the planet. And the plants. That is in the plant. Oh, yeah. All of it. All of it. And that is extremely well put. That's actually why I wanted to have you on first, because I know that you understand the power of communication, both for, for good and for our detriment. 
I mm-hmm. really appreciate you taking this time. And I want everybody listening, if if you haven't already like subscribed to Allie's podcast, Ologies, and you're not already stalking her on all forms of social media, benign stalking, no creepy stalking, <laughs> please do that. Gentle. Follow Allie and uh, support her and her media and SciComm efforts so that we can continue to bring people into the, the age of wonder, whether it's at Jetpacks or Phenology. Keep spreading the good word of science, Allie. Uh, we love you for it. And thank you for, for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on the inaugural episode of This is Science with Jess Phoenix. Huge thanks to Allie Ward. And I'd also like to thank the whole Union of Concerned Scientists crew for making this show a reality. Brian Middleton created our theme music and Omari Spears did the digital heavy lifting. To learn more about UCS and how to join our efforts to save the world with science, go to ucsusa.org. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.